This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 321. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here, as always. So the psychosis on the left over Donald Trump's election, it, it's not going away. Uh, they, they, they seemed perhaps like they were, go, they were having a tantrum. The thing about a tantrum is that usually after a good tantrum is thrown for those of you with children or, I guess, you know, adult, adults who engage in this kinds of behavior uh they sort of blow off some steam they they let it out there and and then maybe they come back to the dinner table or they start to behave themselves uh there's still protests all over new york city still protests happening all over the place uh that are intended i suppose to do what i don't know to give people an opportunity to talk about how much they don't like donald trump we're all quite aware of the fact that there are many out there who are not donald trump fans I don't think we need to be told that. As I said, we are aware. Uh, they've said all sorts of uh, gross things. But I would like to see the comedian class, who obviously are going to have a lot of material for the next four years. You'd like to see those who are supposed to be able to bring us together with comedy and with jokes. Just maybe take a moment and just take a beat and and, and try to make everybody feel a little less Freak, not everybody, of course, but try to make those who are freaked out about this just just calm down a little bit. I have to give uh, what is it the the Onion credit uh, for having for for being willing to at least one time come out and make everybody laugh, right? Not just do something that's uh, completely partisan or I mean, look, they're, they're obviously leftist and they're left of center. But when you start to hear, I'm trying to find the piece. It, it was uh, area liberal. This is from the Onion. No longer recognizes fanciful, wildly inaccurate mental picture of country he lives in. Uh, and there's some great stuff. I just can't believe that almost 60 million people would vote for someone who called immigrants rapists and attacked women. The America selectively constructed from my own experiences and personal values, and which only exists in my mind, uh, that I love, would never do that. <laughs> 
So they're just making fun of some imaginary guy here. But that's a that's a real sentiment in this country. I think there are a lot of people out there who just flatly refuse to believe that the country could. I don't know how you want to pose it. You could say the country could elect Donald Trump or the country could reject Hillary Clinton. It's a combination of the two, quite clearly, if you look at the vote totals. A lot of people didn't come out for Hillary. Uh, fewer people voted for Trump than voted for Romney or McCain, I believe. But the election was the election. Trump is the winner. And now here we are. And comedians can't even be funny for us. You know, they think that we want to hear them cry. I saw I, I, I saw a clip of on SNL, the woman who plays, I think it's Kate McKinnon, plays Hillary Clinton. And remember, this election just happened last week. And there's a lot of other stuff going on in the world. We could sit here and talk quite a bit about what's happening in, oh, any number of foreign policy hotspots, war zones. We could talk about what's going on in Mosul, very bloody, difficult fighting. We could talk about Afghanistan. Four U.S. soldiers, by the way, killed uh, uh, killed on a base there, a NATO base there, uh, I believe by a suicide bomber. And we could talk about the war in Yemen. There's a lot of stuff going on. Ways to fix the economy, the future of Obamacare. I mean, you know, we can go all day, and we often do here on the show, go all day into these kinds of things. But there's still this this whining, this crying about it. The the five stages of grief, which just as a, as an aside for those of you who are curious about thing, the Kubler Ross five stages of grief really are just based on what uh, a, a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, described in a book she wrote in 1969 on death and dying, what the dying have to teach doctors, nurses, clergy, and their own families. But they're not... People always refer to the five stages of grief as though it's... First of all, I think most people believe, just because we believe that anything that's well-known must be attributed to the most well-known person in that field. So I'm sure if you go around and ask, you'd have a fair number that believe that somehow Freud is tied into this or something, right? That this is just... This is gospel now. This is orthodoxy, the five stages of grief. grief, Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Uh, We just see a lot of denial and anger. I don't know if we're going to see any bargaining. We do see depression. I don't know if we're going to see acceptance. It is a neat and tidy way of thinking about grief. I have to to admit that much is certainly certainly true. Uh, But the left is still in full freakout mode. You had Kate McKinnon on SNL singing Jeff Buckley, who drowned, if I recall, very tragically. I think it was in the Mississippi River. Uh, he was a singer-songwriter, uh, best known for... Well, he's a, had a few pretty well-known songs, but uh, his version of Hallelujah. She did the Jeff Buckley version of Hallelujah. That's how they opened a comedy sketch show. A woman dresses Hillary Clinton singing the Jeff Buckley. Now, I know there's some... There's supposed to be some comedic value in this, but but really it's just to show that a lot of people believe that the country is in a state of mourning or should be in a state of mourning. And it's so babyish and unconstructive, and I find it so deeply annoying that this is where we are, especially with those who have a job, and their job is to get everybody to calm down a little bit. I know they would say that's not true. We've elected a sexist and misogynist and this homophobe, and he's going to do all of these terrible things. Meanwhile, he gave an interview in 60 Minutes last night. I've said, by the way, from the beginning, even during the most difficult days of the primary, I'll get back to the 60 Minutes interview in a second. I've said from the very beginning that 
Donald Trump is not an ideologue. It's very unlikely that he'll be hard right as a president in any way. In fact, he's more likely than many of the other possible Republicans who were uh, running in the primary, I think, to be willing to bargain and deal and come up with compromise measures. Because I, I don't think that he goes to sleep every night reciting from the Constitution. In fact, I know that he doesn't. You know that he doesn't. Uh, I think that there's a lot of room for liberals to get their sort of, you know, get what they want out of this, um, or at least to get a halfway measure. I'm not saying he's going to abandon everything. I, I don't think he will. But he's not a hardliner, even if sometimes he's he did. The thing that's fascinating to me is, is it's not that he was a hardliner. It's that he was willing to say things that were even outside of the right wing, sort of the right wing canon of the right wing orthodoxy, but that a lot of people do think. It's not so much a hardliner. People say it's populism or okay. But it was not your standard boilerplate conservatism or republicanism by any stretch of the imagination. And yet they act like this is the end for them. They being really the sort of Hillary base or core voters. They act like this is some horrific, horrific tragedy that has befallen the country. Truth is that. First of all, we have to see. Second of all, he's not even going to be president for a few more months. He's still got President Obama for a few months. He figured they would take some solace or comfort in a continuation of Obamaism for the near future. And last night, he's on 60 Minutes, and he was talking about a number of things, addressing those issues that up to this point in time, people have been wondering sort of where does he stand on this or that. And he says, for example, and this is one of the ones that I hear, and I hear this from my friends in New York, and I keep telling them, look, he's not going to he's not going to overturn gay marriage. First of all, the president can't really do that. But also, this isn't an agenda item he's going to push. I don't believe the Supreme Court, even if it uh, did become a more conservative institution, is going to be rushing to try to overturn the Obergefell ruling uh, anytime soon. I just don't see that happening. And I'm not I, I don't believe that there's. Any any real proof that Donald Trump would go that way? He was on the he was on sixty minutes last night, and he said so himself. Play Donald Trump on gay marriage. Do we have that? There we go. Oh, we apparently we don't have that. We'll have to get that clip for you then in a second. All right, well let's try another one. Uh, Donald Trump on sixty minutes talking about the 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 wall. We got so much. I had people walking around here in New York City saying, "Blank the wall, blank the wall." Um, they weren't actually saying blank for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about here, but blank the wall. Uh, and he's admitted that his wall may in fact just be a fence. Play that clip. Are you really going to build a wall? Yes. They're talking about a fence in the Republican Congress. Would you accept a fence? Uh, for certain areas, I would. But certain areas, the wall is more appropriate. I'm very good at this. It's called construction. But so part wall, fence part will be, fence? Yeah, it could be, there could be some fencing. What about the pledge to deport millions and millions of undocumented immigrants? What we are going to do is get the people that are criminal and have criminal records, gang members, drug dealers. We have a lot of these people. Probably two million. It could even be three million. We're getting them out of our country or we're going to incarcerate. But we're getting them out of our country. They're here illegally. After the border is secured and after everything gets normalized, we're going to make a determination on the people that you're talking about who are terrific people. 
they're terrific people. But we're going to make a determination at that. But before we make that determination, lastly, it's very important. We want to secure our border. He says a lot there. First of all, the fence versus wall, that, that's just a, a rhetorical, more of a, a question of, of rhetoric than actual construction or anything else. I mean, in some places, a fence would probably be better than a wall. Um, but who cares? The, the, whole, the whole point is, 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 is he going to build a barrier, a barrier that will stop illegal entry into the United States or will make it more difficult? It's not going to be perfect, but it should be harder. It should be a more difficult prospect. Uh, but then he goes off, uh, goes on and says about the deportation, he says he's going to deport illegal alien criminals, not just illegal. Now, of course, illegal aliens are inherently in a uh, in an illegal state in this country or they, they have committed a crime. So in a sense, they are criminals, but we can't take that too far as well. I mean, anybody who's ever jaywalked technically has committed a crime and therefore, you know, has a criminal past. But that would seem to be a bit excessive as a means of describing a person who jaywalks. So we all recognize that. Okay. Uh, but the very important point that he makes here is that he's going to focus on deporting illegal, illegal alien criminals and that they're going to have to go. What I think is going to be fascinating is watching, I suppose, the sort of Nancy Pelosi left, because really, who is the leader of the Democratic Party now? And it's not Hillary Clinton. She's gone. Is it going to keep being Barack Obama? I mean, he's not going to be running a sort of parallel presidency. I don't think so. I don't think Barack. I think Barack Obama is probably going to take some time off and get $15 million for his memoir. And oh, yeah, 15 million. That's what they're saying. So who is the de facto leader of the Democratic Party? Really? After as soon as Obama leaves office, who, who, who is the leadership? I don't know. But are they going to defend keeping criminal illegal aliens in this country? Is is that the move they plan on making. I mean, that's the next question you kind of want to know. Really? That's where we are. That's the plan. Going to be, a, I think, an unpopular stance for them to hold. And Trump is saying, we'll build the wall, we'll secure the border, and when we feel the border is secure, and after we've deported all actual criminals who are illegal aliens, so in addition to their illegal status, they have committed crimes, once we've done that, which he believes is two or three million people, I've also seen some analysis on left wing sites saying that non-citizen there are two or three non-citizen two or three million non-citizen criminals in this country, only a million illegal alien criminal, whatever the case may be, whatever the number is, it's too big, and he believes that we will get rid of once we get rid of that, then from there. Uh, we can make a determination about what to do with the rest of the people in this country who are here illegally. This is a clearly a moderation of the initial position that he was taking or that he was believed to have taken. But it also seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? What, what is the unreasonable part of that position? This is what he's saying now. It's unreasonable to deport people who aren't supposed to be here in the first place and can't even follow additional law once they're here. That's unreal. Well, well uh, at that point, everybody gets to stay, including the criminals. So that's not unreasonable. Building a wall or a fence, Congress has voted for it before. Many countries around the world are building their own barriers. Uh, obviously, the Israelis have had tremendous success with their barrier, which is a combination of wall and fence and uh, electronic surveillance and other measures. So we turn to this question again of, okay, well, given that this is 
what Trump is saying. What are all of these people freaking out about? Why are they what are they so worried is going to happen? And I have to say, I think that what you what you have is a a, a sort of excuse. They've come up with this excuse for their crying and all this this behavior. They're really just upset that they don't feel like they will get their way anymore, that the progressive hard left Democrat wing isn't going to be just running the show unopposed. And so then they create this monster, this this fear of of what the Trump presidency is going to be. When I'm walking around that I'm telling friends, I'm telling people in my personal life who don't even care much about politics. It's really not going to be that bad. It's really going to be okay for, for you guys. It's it's not. What are you so you're so worried he's going to lower your taxes? Oh heavens no! You're so worried about frack. I mean, if you really are up late at night because of fracking, I can't help you. You know, if you're if you're crying yourself to sleep on your pillow because you're so worried about the seepage of whatever into our drinking water because you saw a, a documentary with some fantasist pseudoscientist or something, uh, I, I can't help you. But but if you really are, are concerned about Trump rounding people up into camps or uh, nuking countries without reason or overturning gay marriage or uh, I, I, I don't know. We got him on gay. Play him on gay. Here's Trump on, on gay marriage. Play it. One of the groups that's uh, expressing fear is the LBGTQ group. Um, you and yet have- I mentioned them at the Republican National Convention. And everybody said... That was so great. Um, I have been, you know, I've been a, a supporter. Well, I guess the issue for them is marriage equality. Do you support marriage equality? I, I, it's irrelevant because it was already settled. It's law. It was settled in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's done. So even if you appoint a judge that... It's done. It, you have, uh, these cases have gone to the Supreme Court. They've been settled. And uh, I th- I'm, I'm fine with that. It's done. It's settled. What else? What is he saying that is so terrifying to people? This is what I... You've got comedians who can't even do their sets, who can't even entertain America because they're so worried that Donald Trump's long, dark night of fascism has descended upon us. And, and I, you hear this guy, and you're like, this is a pretty, mo- this is a pretty moderate Republican that we happen to have in office, or will have in office, I should say, soon. He's not a hardliner. What is he so hard on? He's not a culture warrior. He's he's not uh, somebody that's going to go to the mat on on issues of faith. I mean, you know, I know some of you are probably disappointed in that. But the, the point I'm making is all of this crying and freaking out. I, I guess the country has just been lulled into this uh, this deep sense of of self-righteousness under the Obama years. And now they're being shaken out of it and they don't like it. They prefer the sort of warmth of the progressive cocoon. All right. We'll be right back, team. Give me a few. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. 
Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Phones are open 888-900-3393. Kevin in New Jersey, what's up? Buck? Yes, uh, hi, Kevin. Hi. So, so, reacting to the election, um, I'm actually enjoying this, this mini orgy of liberal misery, but uh, the problem is that that is being tempered by knowledge that this election really wasn't a victory for the right. It was just a loss for the left. And, uh, you know, the way I viewed the election was that it was solely a referendum on personality, but there was very little talk about policy or philosophy. So that people said, you know, I'm not going to vote for Hillary because she's terrible. But nobody really said that liberal policies objectionable all right we'll have to see kevin uh thank you very much for calling in from nj good to talk to you phones are open team 888-900-3393 we've got a lot more coming be right back the buck sexton show on the blaze radio network Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, everybody, we're joined now by Dinesh D'Souza. He is an author and filmmaker of Hillary's America, among others. Dinesh, great to have you back. Uh, hey, it's good to be on the show. Uh, so, Dinesh, looks like we're not going to be living in Hillary's America. Last time we talked to you, it wasn't clear whether or not it would be the case. I think many assume we would be living in Hillary's America. Uh, what do you think so far about the uh, reaction to Trump's America? Well, this is, a, you know, a catastrophe not made but prevented. So I couldn't be more delighted. And the cool thing is you can actually now watch the movie or read my book and you can do it with a sense of relief. It's almost like, you know, a horror movie where you're watching it, but you're in the safety of your own home and you know that all that horrible stuff is not going to be coming true. Now, the reaction, well, you know, I obviously blame the, the rioters and the protesters, but I also blame the media and Obama and Hillary, because from the beginning, they have given this impression that Trump is sort of not a legitimate guy to be even running, that he's so outside the mainstream, he's such a bigot and he's such a kook that you don't even have to grant him the normal civility that you would normally grant to someone who won a free election. 
So I think what we're seeing is a collective tantrum on the left. Um, and look, you know, we've been we've been through the same thing for the past eight years and we didn't throw a tantrum. So they're going to have to learn to get used to it. What do you think about some of the moves that Donald Trump has has made even over the last few days? We have uh, Ryan's previous is going to be White House chief of staff. There's talk of some uh, other unsurprising choices in the air for a Trump cabinet. How do you see all this shaping up? Well, I think it's the most important two things that I've seen are, number one, the fact that he's announced that he's going to take $1 in salary. Now, that's purely symbolic. He obviously doesn't need the money, and no one thought he was running for president for money. But we've seen so much self-aggrandizing in the White House, people like Obama and Hillary. I mean, Obama's endless vacations, Hillary renting the you know government foreign policy for her own personal profit. So I think Trump is signaling, I'm not going to be that kind of guy. That's going to, be, that's going to go down very well. I also think it was especially bold of Trump not to be scared by the abortion issue, but to basically say, hey, listen, we're going to be trying to dispatch it back to the states. And that means it's not going to be illegal. Uh, it's just going to the decision is going to go where it really belongs. Each community can decide for itself if it wants to have this or not. And if you don't like it, get in your car and drive. Now, uh, on the on the protest, by the way, are, are you. You know, after this whole election process where it was very clear that a majority of the media were not just rooting, but were really active participants uh, in the in the Clinton campaign trying to trying to push her along. There's been no chastening at all. You you don't get the sense that anyone feels like they overstepped. And in fact, there's this desire to elevate the I've walked through one of these protests, by the way. It was a parade of idiocy. Uh, unlike anything I've really seen since Occupy Wall Street. And the media treats this like it's a completely understandable reaction to a presidential election. I, I feel like they, they're really yeah, just, they, I mean, they want no one to trust them anymore. No, I think the media is going to keep doing what it's doing. And it's not going to be enough to say, hey, gee, you know, Trump has 10 million followers on Twitter so he can communicate directly. I do think it's really important for conservatives to start building rival institutions in academia, in media, in Hollywood, because otherwise we're going to have this inbuilt disadvantage over the long term. So I think that's part of it. The other thing is, you know, this foolishness about the fact that Trump didn't win the popular vote. You know, as you know, we have a set of rules the same as they have a set of rules in tennis. Now, you know, if you win three sets, 6-4, you still win the match, even though you may have lost the other two sets, 6-0. And overall, the other guy got more points than you did. That's irrelevant. We play by a set of rules. We build, our country is based on the electoral majority, not the popular majority. Even if we want to change that, we can't change it in retrospect. So it seems like there are, you know, otherwise intelligent people who don't understand these obvious things. And what 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 are you hoping that the Trump campaign will do between now and when they actually take office? And what are some of the things that uh, you'd like to see the Trump White House get done or, or, or not get done, but prepare for? Well, they should be preparing for a lot, but they should be doing and, and saying very little. This reminds me a little bit of when Lincoln was elected in 1860. There was a big gap, much bigger than we have now, between the, the election and the time you took office. And during that time, Lincoln was mysteriously silent. He said very little, even though a lot of chaos was spreading in the country. I mean, states were seceding and so on. But Lincoln realized that, look, I'm not in the driver's seat. I don't have the power to do anything. So simply putting out empty rhetoric is of no use at this point. Same with Trump. 
he needs to be a little careful because everyone's going to try to con him and court him. They know that he's the outsider. So they're going to try to sell him on a whole bunch of lemons right now. He should smile, shake a lot of hands, and essentially say and do very little. And as to uh, to Hillary and, and the Clinton dynasty, obviously your your documentary, uh, Hillary's America, which uh, is a obviously been a big success, and people can now get it on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, were we going to see some some of the the stuff that was talked about? Uh, for example, the Clinton Foundation and its corruption. I feel like it's on a, it, it is no longer refutable when somebody points out that clearly there was a connection between Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's speeches and the power of government office when the cost of those speeches go down precipitously after this election, when donations from foreign <laughs> governments drop off. Uh, are, are these things yeah. you plan to sort of revisit and remind people of? Because there was this, there was the pretense during the election, at least, of, oh, that's all just right-wing nonsense. Really? We'll have to take a look. It's going to be really interesting to see if anyone pays Bill Clinton $750,000 for his usual pablum anymore. Uh, look, I, I think that, that we've seen with WikiLeaks a stunning confirmation. I mean, people inside the Clinton Foundation admitting, gee, our donors want something in return. You know, so all of this stuff that's in the movie, the portrait of the Clintons, not just as ideologues, but kind of as gangsters, stunningly vindicated by the FBI revelations, by the Anthony Weiner revelations, and also by the WikiLeaks revelations. So now the remaining question is not, does this need more expose, but whether or not this will actually now be pursued by the long arm of the law in a serious way. The Clintons were so well connected, they basically polluted the Justice Department. So that place needs a major cleanup. The FBI, that place needs a cleanup as well. And the point here isn't a political vendetta, but rather making sure that nobody, not Clinton, not Hillary, not Obama, is above the law. What do you think about the possibility of a pardon uh, for for Hillary Clinton from either Obama or perhaps even from Trump once he takes office? Well, I don't think that Trump should pardon Hillary, nor do I think he will. Um, with Obama, it's going to be unbelievably sleazy if he does, and it's going to show that he actually, that the fish really stinks from the head up, that the problem isn't even Hillary, and that the reason that Hillary was able to get away with her shenanigans at the White House is because the corruption was coming, uh, I mean, at the State Department, is that the corruption was coming from the White House itself. I mean, who's been corrupting Loretta Lynch, if not Obama? Who's been trying to intimidate Comey, if not Obama? So this is beautiful. Obama pardons Hillary, but nobody can pardon Obama. So I think if we see that, it would be interesting to have an investigation of Hillary that that might lead all the way to the president himself. So you believe that this should be pursued then? You're you're of the mind that this should not be passed up by the next administration for the purposes of, of I mean, sort of- how can it how can it how can it not be pursued and what possible rationale is there? Look, if Trump is going to say these people are corrupt, crooked Hillary, the system is rigged. You have to do things to unrig the system. You've got to make sure that the same rule of justice applies to everybody. So, you know, I got eight months confinement for giving $20,000 with no corruption. Okay. Um, you, 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 the, the point is other people who do the same thing should be receiving the same penalty. You can't catch one guy speeding and give him five years in prison when everybody else gets a $50 fine. Uh, Danette, I think that's a very, very powerful point. I mean, when you look at the the situation that you just described that you went through, um, those of us who would say, well, maybe leniency for Hillary because of because it'll bring the country together politically, which 
I'm not even sure that's true, even if one was willing to make that concession. Uh, the, the government has not shown such leniency to other people in similar cases. In fact, usually the FBI pursues corruption cases with more aggressiveness than, than almost any other class of crime. I mean, that's that tends to be something that gets headlines. Well, sure. And so attorneys offices love to chase down anything in that realm. Well, the campaign finance laws exist to prevent corruption. So even if someone were to give 500 bucks, but they're trying to buy a political office or they're trying to, to uh, you know, convince a politician to vote one way or the other way, that's the actual corruption that these laws were designed to prevent. With the Clintons, look, there's a powerful constituency on the left associated with Ralph Nader and Bernie Sanders and many others that's also tired of corruption. So the, the beauty of a, of a kind of very impartial corruption inquiry, wherever it leads. And believe me, Republicans aren't innocent of this, too. There's plenty of horse trading and all kinds of bad stuff that goes on in the Republican camp as well. So cleaning out these stables is not a bad thing, and I think will be a refreshing sign and received that way, not only on the right, but also on the left. Last one for you, uh, Dinesh. Do you have any thoughts on Reince, I'm sorry, on uh, Bannon as uh, senior White House counsel? Well, I'll just say that, you know, in in the days of Reagan, there was a lot of, you know, people who said, oh, my gosh, we can't have this guy. We can't have that guy. This guy's too right wing. That guy's too moderate. And in the end of the day, none of that really mattered because inside Reagan was Reagan. And Reagan's point was, I want to hear from a bunch of guys, but I'm going to be the guy calling the shots. It's very apparent that Trump is probably the most confident guy in his own instincts and his own impulses. I mean, this is an election victory. A lot of us helped, but he pulled it off. And so I think at the end of the day, we're going to see a Trump presidency and everybody else is simply going to help him outline the implications of his actions. Dinesh D'Souza is the number one New York Times bestselling author and filmmaker of Hillary's America, which is available now on DVD and Blu-ray. More at DineshD'Souza.com. Dinesh, great to have you. Thanks for making time today. Hey, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, team eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three on those phone lines. You want to call in and chat for a bit? We can do so, and I'll be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Susan in Rhode Island, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hello, Buck. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you, Susan? I'm hanging in, thank you. We spoke last week. I told you I was on the fence. Um, but I'm calling uh, today regarding your interview with Dinesh. I always respected Dinesh. I thought he was a great inspiration to all of us, particularly constitutional conservatives. Um, I'm going to be frank with you. I'm very, very disappointed in him. Um, Your question about what do you think about what Donald Trump is doing so far, um, he qualified his answer, and he didn't go into a lot of detail. And I'm finding that a lot of the people on the right that supported Donald Trump They're not addressing all of the movement to the left that he's made in the last seven days. And there's been a lot of it. That concerns me more right now than what the Democrats are doing. The Democrats, let them go lick their wounds. 
They lost fair and square. That's all well and good. What I'm concerned about is what he is going to be doing to the conservative movement. That's been my concern right along. And I think we're going to be marginalized. We're going to be mocked. We're going to be made irrelevant, particularly by his choice of Steve Bannon as his chief advisor. So you're, you're noticing the things that he's saying, which I would assume should, should quiet uh, some of the fears of liberals. But you're pointing out, well, that's, that's moderating his positions, in some cases abandoning early, uh, early positions of his campaign. That's true. That's exactly what he's doing. And he got a lot of people to vote for him because he claimed he was a conservative. And we were screaming in the corner saying, no, 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 he's not. He's a New York liberal. He'll govern as a New York liberal. And we're going to get stuck with a huge stimulus plan. We're going to get stuck with a child care plan we can't afford. And many, many other things. He's talking now about forgiving student loans. That's a dream of the left. We've been against that right along. Um, Isn't it interesting that he's... he's feared by so many on the left for being this sort of arch arch right winger and all along in the campaign people would say well look at his position you know years ago he had certainly non-conservative positions on a whole host of issues he's jumped around a lot uh you know i I know that i say that i say this to you and this doesn't comfort you but i would i would think it's interesting that you could tell people with a straight face you know, if you're a liberal, you've got someone you can actually work with on a whole bunch of things. And, and yet he doesn't get any credit for that from, from them and from the I rest of I us or from someone. conservatives. They're saying, OK, so is he going to sell out? What's going to happen? Someone just I, I read it last week. Someone did mention that. I'm not sure if it was Ben Shapiro, but it was one of the conservatives said the liberals will will wind up better off with him than the constitutional conservatives will. They oh, I think I think Ted Cruz would have been much more like. much should have been had he won. It would be much more frightening to the left than yes. uh, than Donald Trump is. Uh, this is what's so interesting to me. I mean, Donald Trump is a, is a, is a New York guy. Uh, you know, he's he's changed positions a lot. He's not a politician. Uh, I, he's a, he's a deal maker. I mean, they're getting a deal maker, and they think they're getting somebody who is just going to be dropping the hammer of. You know, hard, hard line, I don't know, constitutionalism, which shouldn't be considered hard line, but you know what I mean. I don't know what they think is, is going to happen here, but he's already said he's the Muslim ban, gone. Deporting gone. all 11 million illegals, gone. gone. I mean, you, you go down the list of these issues, uh, you know, a, a trillion dollar infrastructure spend, keeping some of the parts of Obamacare. I mean, what are they so afraid of? It's kind of what, you know, I feel like our side should be more upset, but we're kind of like, yeah, at least it's not Hillary. They're not paying attention. They're not paying it. They're so caught up in the fact that they lost. They're not paying attention yet. Yeah. All right. Susan from Rhode Island. Great to talk to you guys. Hour two coming up. Be right back. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to 
the Freedom Hub. We're in hour two now. We're joined by our friend John Schindler. He's a national security columnist at The Observer. His latest piece up is America's Emerging Nationalism Crisis up on Observer.com right now. John, great to have you. Great to be here as always, Buck. All right, John, talk to us a bit about First off, uh, I I have to love the Clinton campaign. I I thought they would do this, but uh, part of me wanted to believe they wouldn't be so so uh, just so obvious. Uh, Hillary Clinton is is just openly blaming Comey for her loss. Now, the FBI caused Hillary to lose. That's right. The the emerging Clintonian narrative is everything was fine until Jim Comey, the FBI director, reopened the email gate investigation. Um, of course, this is classic Clintonian logic, where the problem isn't the laws they broke and all the bad stuff they did, uh, institutionalizing corruption in the State Department. The problem is that the FBI investigated it. Um, I, look, I, I think it's pretty clear Emailgate, which I've written about for a long time, uh, did her enormous damage. I think that was the problem here. And, I, of course, Comey's reminding the public of it didn't help her, but she has to own this. This has to be something they have to eventually realize uh, is, is on them more than it is on the FBI or anyone else. I, no, don't hold your breath on that happening. But that that ultimately is what has to happen here. And do you think the dynasty is over? You think the, you think the Clintons yeah. are, are are gone for good now, or are they going to make a they going to make a play for Chelsea to do something in the next few years? Oh, they they will no doubt uh, make a play for Chelsea. But I I think look, the, the Clinton brand is uh, badly tarnished across the board. I mean, a lot of folks on the left now not without cause think they pretty much robbed Bernie Sanders of the Democratic nomination. And of course, everyone to the right of the Clintons never hasn't liked them in a long time anyway. I, I mean, you know, never is a long time, as I like to say, but I wouldn't want to be someone trying to push Chelsea right now as, as more than sort of a, a, a you know, political cabaret variety act. Um, I don't see much likes in this anytime soon. Now, you talk in your piece here uh, about about nationalism and sort of the, the clash of nationalisms that this election has brought brought to the fore. I wanted to just give you give you the, the, the floor uh, to make the case about why is this exactly a sort of it, it really people have mentioned Van Jones at CNN, where I also work, mentioned a, a white lash. Uh, but there is something of a backlash to a, a sense that the left has had for a while, not just a sense, their rhetoric that America needs to be less white and enable to progress, enable to progress rather. I mean, you see on MSNBC, right. you know, you, you'll see titles about the Browning. This is a quote from MSNBC about how the Browning of America is imminent and and why this should be celebrated. This is dangerous right. stuff that the left was playing with long before the Trump election. Right, and uh, the left under Obama has really gone for the identity politics angle, which amounts to you know. N- saying negative things about average white Americans as sort of the glue that holds their rather odd coalition together. And that hit the wall this time without Obama on the ticket. And a lot of average white Americans just had enough. Look, if you're a white college student who's been to grad school and has received critical race theory in class, uh, this seems normal. The reality is the vast majority of white Americans have not had that experience, and a lot of them want to know why it's okay for leading politicians and their celebrity surrogates to openly celebrate that white America is dying off. Um, you had Lena, Lena Dunham shortly before the election, who I think she's a lunatic, but she's a well-known Democratic surrogate, put out there a clip on social media extolling the extinction, it used the word extinction, of straight white men. How could it be possible to talk about the, you know, gleefully talking about the extinction of any group of Americans, who no matter who they are, but that's what has become normative in the Democratic Party, and they pay the price for it because most white Americans are not ebullient about they're going extinct. 
they're normal human beings who feel they have interests. And what has happened is after a decade now, a Democratic Party harping on identity politics, which is really a form of nationalism, that's what it really is, um, working class white Americans said, I've had enough. If blacks have group interests, if Hispanics have group interests, then so do we. And this is a genuinely radical change, and this could bring a lot of instability. Let's make this very clear. As we move away from political parties as standing for ideology to political parties standing for ethnic groups in almost a tribal fashion, our politics are probably not going to get nicer. Yeah, I mean, and Democrats have been so blatant about this for a long time as well. Yeah. We, we see anybody who belongs to one of these identity groups is considered to be – they will use – Language like a traitor, uh, for example, if they, if a person who is a minority adheres to a non-progressive, non-leftist ideology, whether it's republicanism or libertarian or anything, uh, they are cast out of the group. The media treats them with with scorn and disdain. Um, and this does have consequences. I think, as, as you're pointing out in your piece, there's going to be a reaction to this. Uh, that that the Democrats seem to think that they could continue on forever doing this, particularly when working class whites had been a Democrat constituency for a long time. So you got the the top echelons of the Democratic Party essentially saying working class white people are bitter clingers. Obama's guns and uh, guns and Bibles comment that sort of stuff built up. And we do see, I think, finally, the sort of boiling over of that kind of rhetoric in this election. Yeah, and of course, when Hillary went for her deplorables comment, baskets of deplorables, I, I think um, you know, working class America, especially its white part, you know, realized she was talking about them. And look, I, we're already finding out that in strategically vital swing states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, a fair chunk of these working class white voters who went for Trump had gone for Obama twice in previous elections. These are people who are not intrinsically racist. They really want change for reasons that we should have sympathy for. Obama didn't give it to them. They're going to give Trump a chance. Whether that will work out for them, I have no idea. It's too soon to tell. But they've given Trump that chance, and they gave him the edge in the election. And the most interesting thing is the GOP, the Republican Party, did not want to go down the road Trump did. Trump explicitly tried to get the votes of working-class whites. Mitt Romney, I'll be blunt, lost in 2012 because he would not do it. The areas of Ohio, for instance, that he lost, critically lost in 2012, possibly costing him the White House, Trump took by, by you know, percentages we haven't seen in the modern era. So something real happened here. The GOP was woken up against its will by Donald Trump. And as I say in my piece, he didn't just slay the Clinton dynasty, he slayed the Bush dynasty as well. Let's give the man credit. This is his first time in politics. He's made a ton of mistakes, but he took out the two political dynasties that have more or less run our national politics since the 1980s. And that is no small achievement, no matter right. what well, you think of Trump. Well, yeah, exactly. Whether you like him or not, it is astonishing. Whether you like I mean, you him gotta... or not, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And this, this election matters historically. I predict this will go down like 1980 with the Reagan Revolution, like 1932 with the FDR Revolution, like 1860 with Lincoln's coming to power, leading to our civil war. Hopefully this won't lead to another civil war, but I think this election, historically speaking, may be as important as all of those and how it fundamentally changes Americans and their attitudes toward government and the political coalitions that they're willing to support. It is um, fascinating that the GOP, after yeah. the last election, when they had their, their sort of you know, campaign autopsy, their initial reaction to what had happened was, well, we just need to get more Hispanic voters. 
Um, sure, there are some efforts here and there, and it should be noted that it was the GOP and not the Democratic Party, as, as I know you know, John, but I just think right. it's worth restating, well, that had not one but two top contender Latino candidates uh, for you know, for their nomination. It was on the GOP side that you had you know, Rubio and Cruz, and didn't really seem to make a dent at all in, in Hispanic and Latino support for the GOP. So I, I think you can at least make the case, and we can't really know because we can't run the experiment uh, in reverse or run it over again, <laughs> that that there really only were two options. Initially, the GOP in 2012 was saying, and I think this was still their preferred option, by the way, we got to win oh, more yeah. Hispanics. That's where you got Rubio and, the, and, and uh, all of a sudden his um, fondness for comprehensive immigration reform and some other senators, right. too, pushing this in the GOP. I think that that would have been a losing strategy, actually. I think the only way they win is actually to go after the white working class vote. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the, first of all, the Hispanics are no monoliths. And, you know, Trump did better with Hispanics than people thought he would, given some of his rhetoric, unpleasant rhetoric about Mexicans and whatnot. He did better than I thought he would. But they're not a monolith. And Trump went down the road. The GOP has not wanted to go down, but he won with it. And the GOP has to wake up and realize that the white working class is your bread and butter now. They, they cannot be politically ignored. The Democrats paid the price for that. They paid an enormous price. And remember, I, I can't overstate what a terrible condition at a national level the Democratic Party is in. They control nothing in D.C. They've been wiped out of the state level. The, the Democrats at this point control our big cities, California, and the Northeast. And that's it. They are a fringe party in a lot of the country at this point. And, you know, that's all Obama. This isn't Trump's a genius. He's not, he's not a political genius. He just figured out what would work. This is the real legacy of Barack Obama making his party extreme, making it exceptionally indulgent of identity politics that turns off a lot of working class white Americans. And that's really why Trump is president. right. Well, the, the, the part of the problem of identity politics for everybody except white people. And I have to say, I knew a lot of conservatives who were saying that Trumpism was identity politics for white people, sort of filling that hole. And, and they said that with a, yeah. a lot of scorn and disdain. Of course, there the, there's a sort of loud, uh, the loud sort of Internet fringe and the alt right and that. But generally speaking, you look at the white working class vote that came out for Trump that was the different that was the difference maker in this election. And are they really to be blamed or are they really to be spoken down to because the Democratic Party doesn't care about them and, and they don't get to be a part of any cool group that the Democrats are constantly touting as making America better or part of the new fabric of America or to, to use the MSNBC verbiage, the browning of America? Uh, I think it's OK for somebody who's a working class white guy in Michigan to be like, well, what about me? Is that, and, and the Democrats think that, that, me, may, that that's racist and makes them a bad person. That's that's, they're making this they, worse. They call that hate explicitly. And look, are, are there white, white nationals who are complete violent lunatics? Absolutely. Of course, yeah. I mean, these people exist. But there are also black nationalist lunatics and Hispanic nationalist lunatics, people who want to cre- recreate the Aztec Empire in, America, in the U.S. Southwest. You have new Black Panther fanatics. All nationalisms have a fanatical fringe. But that doesn't discredit the idea, for instance, that Black nationalism, black identity is good. Hispanic identity is good. Why should that discredit white identity either? I mean, this is really where we're at right now. And this is all Trump. This is all what Trump has wrought. I don't even know if he understands it, frankly. It's not clear to me that he does. But what the GOP didn't want to do, he went out and did. And what happens now, of course, we've got riots all over the country, people refusing to accept Trump's legitimacy, um, which, you know, is only more grist to Trump's mill. Trump had said the, you know, the far left are a bunch of violent lunatics, and they are. Uh, you, so, you know, how, how this hurts Trump right now, I, I don't see. 
Do you think the Democrats, especially as as they search for, I, I don't know who the leader of the Democrat, who the de facto leader of the Democratic Party yeah, is going either. to be once Obama is no longer the president, right? It's it's not Clinton's right. Democratic Party anymore. I, I don't think Obama is going to be able to maintain control after eight years as president as just being the former president. So it sort of reverts to, I, I don't know, the sort of Schumer, Pelosi, uh, you kind of go to the Democrat industrial complex and you have all these different people that aren't particularly charismatic and that I, I don't think have a strategic vision uh, for for their party. Are, are they going to try to turn this thing around and win back white voters? Or do you think they're going to continue with this? All I see is this was racism. Uh, when, you, when you see prominent right. Democrats, so far, both in media and in politics, right. this, this was a, a, a racism referendum is what they're really thinking the Trump victory was. That's right. And if they stick with that, they're going to destroy themselves even more. If, if they want to become what that great uh, Democratic spin meister Paul Begala famously called a party of gays, blacks, and college professors, um, you know, go ahead. You're just not going to win any national elections anytime soon. Um, if, if they cannot figure out a way to reengage with at least a good chunk of the working class, including the white working class, they're in big trouble. The problem for them is, even though a lot of these white working class voters have voted Democrat for most of their lives, okay, let's make, this is a traditional Democratic constituency, but they have so alienated them with their sort of social justice rhetoric that they've got to dial that back. And I don't know if they can. That's the problem. This has become so internalized in how the left views America and the world, this requires them to really tamp down things they care about. So they've got a big problem on their hands. If, 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 if they want to be competitive in 2020 or in the midterms between there, they've got to stop turning off a lot of average white, working-class white Americans. It's no, I, I think any, anybody who was on the fence in, in Michigan, in Ohio, in these states, right. in Wisconsin, in these states that now are the ones that, as we know, are, are going to be determining elections for the foreseeable future, uh, Florida, right. uh, anybody in those states who see these these primarily college kids, because I've actually seen the protests, uh, <laughs> marching around, who are who are literally in tears because of the fear of transgender bathroom usage being somehow right. over, you know, not what they want it to be, whatever it is they're advocating for. I think they see that and they're like, yeah, and Barack Obama and, and the most important Democrats in the country, they totally pander to that. They, they go along with of it. Of course. Well, and to show you how, how fact-free it is, let's just take the gay issue. In fact, whether you like him or not, and I've never been a big fan of Trump's, but Trump is, in fact, the most pro-LGBT president going into office we have ever had. He is far more publicly pro-LGBT than Barack Obama was when he was sworn in in 2009. Remember how long he opposed gay marriage, at least in public? That's right. He was a traditional marriage guy. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, last night on 60 Minutes, Trump said, you know, do, you know gay marriage settled by the Supreme Court. It's done. Trump has recently appeared in public carrying a gay, gay pride flag. I mean, I mean, what does he have to do to make people realize he isn't an ogre who wants to put, you know, gay Americans back in the closet? That is simply, no matter what you think of him, that is simply not true. There is zero evidence for it and tons of evidence that that is not at all how he feels. You know, Peter Thiel, who is, you know, real close to the, to the Trump team, openly gay. And, of course, he's been accused of being not really gay because he's pro-Trump, which I don't even know what that means. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's very, it, facts don't seem to matter here. They, they just don't seem to matter. And rather than give Trump a chance, I mean, hey, Trump may totally, you know, blow it and get impeached three months into his presidency. I don't know. It's possible. But we, we, we should give him a chance to try and be president. And the, the current antics, the street theater, the constant chance of racism are, and, and, you know, anti-gay, anti-everything are not helping public discourse. They're just not. John Schindler is a national security 
uh, national security writer over at The Observer. Read his latest on Observer.com. Follow him at 20 Committee. By the way, what's what 20 Committee? Tell everybody. Where did that come from? 20 Committee was the uh, British uh, counterintelligence operation during the Second World War that uh, turned the entire German agent network in Great Britain to work for them and provided the critical strategic deception for many things, including fooling the Germans about the time and location of the D-Day landing in June 6, 1944. Pretty a cool very stuff. Very great there, counterintelligence but... success story. You got right. it. Now you know. There you go. Now <laughs> knowing is half the battle. <laughs> John Schindler, everybody, great to have you, John. Hey. Thanks again. Thanks. See you soon. Uh, team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. Watson in Florida, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Buck. How are you doing? Shields high? I'm good. Shields high. Um, listen, this last week I, uh, I found myself watching again the, um, a documentary uh, called The Best of Enemies um, about the 1968 ABC... Uh, um, yeah, I know you're talking about with the guy, what's his name? Uh, um, William F. Buckley and, uh, and uh, Gore Vidal, yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until Hitchens came up in there to have a, you know, to speak a little bit that I thought, um, I found myself thinking, oh my gosh, like, you know, you forget after he's gone and everything, but I wonder what in the world he would be thinking right now. Because, um, you know, of course, his public disdain for the Clintons and his swing to the right during the first part of the century and then sort of back to the left with the torture and the war in Iraq and everything. And I wonder what, what, do you think Christopher Hitchens, if he had a piece coming up in the in the next Vanity Fair, what he might be thinking about our current state of affairs? Um, you know, I can easily see him being against Trump just because of his, you know, whatever pseudo buffoonish. I mean, you know, uh, just behavior yeah, and well, everything. But yeah, I, I hear you. You know, I never had the I never had the uh, the the pleasure of actually meeting Hitchens as so many others in media did. I read a lot of his stuff, though, and, and based on being an avid reader of all things Hitchens, I, I'm sure he would be celebrating. Uh, he would be celebrating the defeat of the Clinton dynasty because even as a lefty, he thought that they were just the most corrupt, lying sacks of bad stuff on the planet. And uh, but I also I also think he would find Donald Trump pretty repulsive. So you know, I, I think he'd be a pox on both their houses kind of a guy. That's my honest assessment. Okay. Well, yeah, that's sort of what I thought also, and just uh, just figured I'd ask your opinion. No, of course. Hey, it's an it's an interesting thought experiment. I wish I wish Hitch was still around to answer the question himself. Uh, well, you know, he was yeah. definitely a love him or hate him, always interesting kind of a guy. I, I agree. And I thought so, on so some, much, sometimes, much. man, on on radical Islam, there are a few people more interesting to hear uh, engage in that debate. Watson in Florida, Shields High, great to talk to you, team. We've got more. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. 
So, Team, Donald Trump has made some waves with his would-be trillion-dollar plan to build U.S. infrastructure out. I want to talk a bit about infrastructure in this country, somebody who really knows what's going on with it top to bottom. We've got Professor David Levinson on the line. He's on the faculty of the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Geoengineering at the University of Minnesota. He has a Ph.D. in engineering the University of California, Berkeley, uh, his dissertation on whom the toll falls focused on local decision making for financing and management of roads. He's also written a whole bunch of books on this stuff. Sir, uh, Professor, I can't fit in all of your transport or all of your uh, infrastructure expertise, but it is considerable, sir. Thank you for calling in. Oh, thank you. Uh, OK, Trump wants to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. First of all, how bad is infrastructure really in this country? He keeps saying, you know, our roads are falling apart, our bridges are falling apart. Is that true, or is that just an overstatement? How would you gauge that? Well, the American Society of Civil Engineers um, rates infrastructure fairly poorly. Now, they're an interest group, so you know one has to be aware of things like motivated reasoning. Um, they have an incentive to spend more money on infrastructure. So everyone who's saying that infrastructure is in really bad shape um, has an incentive. Now, you travel, you go to airports, you drive on roads. Um, you might take transit. You can see that, in fact, there is problems with infrastructure. Nobody really knows the full magnitude of this and how much should be spent. Um, there's lots of things that can be done. And so there's different kinds of problems. There's maintenance issues. And so in Washington, D.C., there's the, the metro system, for instance, has, is undergoing a major overhaul now, which is causing a lot of inconvenience for users in order to improve the safety of the system um, because it hasn't been maintained properly over time. There's a large number of bridges in the United States that haven't been maintained properly. And and even if they are maintained properly, they're getting older. Every day, every bridge gets older. Every road gets older until you, you know, until you replace it or rebuild it. So there are real issues out there. Uh, The magnitude is unclear. There's also other types of things that that people talk about, um, things like congestion. Um, People complain, and Trump particularly has notably complained, about the quality of airports uh, LaGuardia and, and Kennedy in New York in particular. So there are a set of issues out there. And the question is, how are you going to pay for it? And who's going to pay for it? And who's responsible for it? And what's the best way to deal with it? And how should it be managed? And there's not a, a single straightforward answer for that. Now, I know you write the uh, the transportist, uh, the transportist.org, which is a blog about these kinds of issues. And in one of your pieces, you dealt with the era of big infrastructure and how it is over. This is from a few years ago. People always ask that question. I always wonder, you know, this is something that you'll, you'll hear uh, grumpy conservatives sometimes will say, well, you know, government stinks now. You know, look at how quickly you made the Hoover Dam back in the day. Or they'll point to the interstate highway system or they'll point to uh, railroads. And by the way, this is often used also to sort of silence libertarians and say, do you like railroads? Do you like interstate highway? But those massive uh, projects that literally span the country, it seems like that would be impossible today. Is that really true? I mean, we can't even get high-speed rail going up in California, and the cost of it would be so expensive that people laugh. Yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, the interstate highway system, you know, it was first proposed in some form in the 1930s, more seriously in the 1940s, and it wasn't until 1956 that it actually passed Congress, and it wasn't until 1992 or so that it was finished. Um, Big infrastructure takes a long time. Uh, The Transcontinental Railroad, you know, first railroads in the U.S. were in the 1830s. The Golden Spike wasn't until the, uh, it should be 1870s, I believe. So 
it takes a long time to build big things. And the question is, do we have big things that are worth building? And we built the interstate highway system. It's a great thing. It provides safe and convenient transport for people and goods. That's, that's a wonderful thing to have. That doesn't mean we need a second one. Um, we built railroads across the country. We, we peaked in our railroad mileage back in the 1920s and have since been shrinking our system. The, the lines that are there are carrying more freight every year, but we're using the system more efficiently. So the question is, going forward, do we need new large infrastructure projects? Or do we need to focus on maintaining the infrastructure we have? I think we need to spend more attention on, on maintenance and less on, on building new systems. But that doesn't mean there, aren't, there isn't anything that should be built. What should be built? What, what, what could we really use in this country? I mean, people will say, have you ever been to Japan? Look at their high-speed trains. Have you ever been to Singapore? Look at how efficient and, you know, obviously Singapore is a lot smaller. But what, what could we do better or what should we do uh, in terms of building something new? Well, I mean, there's a few projects, selected projects, that are probably worth doing. In, in New York and New Jersey, um, there's probably a need for another tunnel under the Hudson River. Um, there's some old tunnels there, and if one of them gets closed down, either because um, there's a flood or because you, need, you know that you need to repair it because there's cracking and it's old, there's going to be a lack of capacity. So knowing that in advance suggests that there are a few things that should be built. Um, we, we can look at urban transit. Um, there are places that, you know, like Los Angeles is, is taxing itself, to build a, a more robust urban transit system. Um, New York has the Second Avenue subway under construction. But these are very, very expensive things. And, and saying that these are useful things doesn't mean that that's the highest priority. And so a question of how do you move people and goods and what's the best thing to do, it's complicated. I'm, I, don't, I don't think that, you know, saying build a new airport in New York. I mean, the airports in New York might be congested, but that's not necessarily the answer. We need to think about how we manage our system better. So we have congested roads. What can we do about that? Well, something that, that some countries do to a greater or lesser extent is think about how we pay for the roads. Um, we pay less in the U.S. Uh, to drive a mile than they do in almost any other country in the world. So why is that? Well, we, we pay via gas tax, and the gas tax doesn't even co cover the cost of, of maintaining roads, much less building new roads. Other countries, they charge a gas tax, and that more than covers the cost of, of paying for the road system, and they use it to replace regular taxes. Now, you say, well, we don't want to raise taxes, sure, but we have taxes. The question is, what taxes should we, should we increase and which taxes should we decrease? If you want to discourage something, you increase the tax on it. If you want to encourage it, you lower the tax on it. If, we want, if you lower the tax on transportation or you don't raise it over time, which is effectively lowering it in real terms, you encourage more people to travel. Okay, more people traveling is a good thing, but more people traveling during rush hour is congestion. Driving in congestion is a waste of everybody's resources. You know, I'm wasting time because somebody else is on the road. Now, I might need to be there, and they might need to be there, but there's this third person who doesn't need to be there, but they're not paying their full cost. They don't think about the congestion they're imposing on everybody else. So there's a lot of interlocking pieces here. Um, what do you think of Trump's but, proposed infrastructure plan, if I'm asked? People say it's a trillion-dollar proposal, a huge proposal. Uh, it's not conservative, right? So people who are politically looking at this or people who are looking at this from a, a partisan lens uh, are going to be upset just at the notion of the government spending that much money on something. But just as an infrastructure expert, what do you think about it? Well, 
I think it's optimistic to expect the private sector to be building a lot of infrastructure projects because the private sector is going to want to return on investment. And where we're at now is there's not a lot of infrastructure that's going to have a great return on investment. I mean, if you were in a country with no infrastructure and you built the first road, that could be a really profitable road because a lot of people would need to use it. You know, there's no other convenient way to get between point A and point B. If you're in a country where there's already a lot of roads between point A and point B and someone comes and says, well, we should build a new road between um, just near point A to just near point B, well, that's competing against a road that's already out there, a road that's already un- untold most cases, so it's, it's um, subsidized. And you're asking someone to come in and build a new road, probably a toll road because they need to recover their investment if they're a private company. And why are they going to do that? It's, it's going to be a really hard sell to get private companies to want to build that much stuff. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a role for the private sector in transportation, because obviously there is. But unless we're prepared to sell off um, our existing infrastructure, which is what some countries are doing, Australia in particular is selling off a lot of public infrastructure, getting a lot of money for that and using that to invest in new things. Um, but that involves putting tolls on things that are not tolled now. Um, that involves turning over to the private sector the opportunity to raise rates. Um, So, for instance, Indiana, under Governor Mitch Daniels, a Republican, um, basically put out a long-term lease on the Indiana toll road, and private firm picked up the lease. And this was an existing toll road, and so there wasn't – you already knew what the competition was. You already knew what the market was. And they paid Indiana a lot of money up front, and their back end was that they were going to collect the toll revenue over a long period of time. And the 2008 recession comes in and the company has to uh, file for bankruptcy and reorganize. And so new companies picked up the deal and they'll probably do OK over the long run. But it shows how difficult it is to even even existing toll roads are hard to privatize. And so building a new road where the level of traffic is unproven is very spe- is a very speculative investment. Not a lot of companies are going to want to do that, even if you give them a tax break, which is essentially what the um, plan is, is to cut, you know, well, make it you- so that there's a lower taxes on these new, on these new private right. investments in infrastructure. Professor, what can you tell us about about jobs here? I mean, people, it's it's a common refrain you'll hear again from from conservatives that the government can't create jobs. Well, if the government's building a highway and paying people for at least a period of time, there are jobs. Uh, there, there are people who are paid to you know do that construction. Uh, are there are there sort of long term benefits to employment even beyond the initial construction phase with major infrastructure projects? I mean, is infrastructure spending by government shown to, if not just create durable jobs for the long run from the project itself? useful because it opens up businesses in certain areas? I mean, what can you tell us about the job side of this? So this was a question that was widely debated around 2009 with um, the stimulus bill, um, the Recovery Act. And so there were claims that there would be a huge multiplier effect. So you hire a construction worker, and that's great, and the construction worker is going to buy groceries and get their hair cut, and that's going to lead to more economic activity. And an and in a period where you have a, where the construction worker would otherwise be idle, there's a re- reasonable argument that, that that's the case, that, you know, they are creating demand that wouldn't otherwise exist because they would otherwise be unemployed. Now, we're pretty close to a full employment economy now. Now, you, obviously, it's not a full employment economy, but but unemployment rate is a lot lower than it was in 2009. 
And so hiring a lot of construction workers is for building infrastructure is going to mean that you're driving up the cost of doing everything else. So in a period of unemployment, something that might generate a lot of stimulus is in a period of near full employment going to result in crowding out of other economic activities, and it's basically a substitution. Now, it might be that the infrastructure is worth doing because it's a better investment than whatever else would be being built, you know, another Trump hotel, or um, you can imagine what other other construction projects would be out there that the construction worker would be doing instead of being on the road crew. But even then, most road construction people have a different set of skills than most residential construction people or office building construction people or stadium construction people. So it's not that, that individuals are easily transferred between these and that we're already employed our construction workers, road construction workers building roads, where are the next set of, um, what are they going to be doing? What are they not doing instead of doing that? Okay. Are they not building roads for local government because they're building these larger roads? Um, you know, so it's not clear where, where the stimulus um, multiplier effect is going to be. It's going to certainly be lower than it would be if there was a lot of unemployment. Last one for you, uh, Professor, before we got to let you go, because we're running up into a hard break here. If we made you the uh, infrastructure czar under the Trump government, let's just assume you would do that. But <laughs> if that was your job and you could do any one thing, what would be the first project you would do? You mean the first build- construction project that yes, I would sir. do? Um, probably a tunnel under the Hudson River, but uh, not absolutely convinced about that. All right. Well, fair enough. Professor David Levinson is at the University of Minnesota. He is on the transport. He's the author, rather, of the Transportist blog, transportist.org. He also has a bunch of books, davidlevinson.org. You can check them all out there. Professor, great to have you, sir. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Uh, Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. So, team, just so you know, why I was talking about, in case you uh, don't don't remember or don't know the details of it, why we were talking about infrastructure. I know we were kind of getting down into the the uh, infrastructure weeds there for a little bit, but I think it's important to get some idea and also get some perspective from from those who study this. Uh, and I, I try to. Have, I didn't. Want, that wasn't a political conversation. I just wanted to know about infrastructure, right? So I. Sometimes I'm not going to uh, get into it with a guest when a guest is saying that we have near full employment. He caught himself on that, but he's an infrastructure guy. So I wanted to hear what he had to say about infrastructure. That's why we had him on. Uh, and and there was some interesting stuff. Trump has promised uh, over the course of his election as a campaign promise, a trillion dollar program to rebuild highways, tunnels and br- bridges and airports. And look, this is he also has said it will create millions of jobs according to politico here um and has likened it to eisenhower's interstate highway system creation it's a 10-year infrastructure proposal so if trump goes through and he you know look there's a lot of ego involved in this too for trump i think he thinks of himself as a builder he thinks that he can do this this is kind of in his wheelhouse this is where he can really show his stuff leave his mark on the country just as he's left his mark on new york city and other places across the world uh, with his big towers and hotels and such. Uh, so that's why I want to talk about it. I mean, this is a, a trillion dollar infrastructure program is a big deal. And Trump is saying he's going to do it. 
And it's not what a conservative would be saying we should be doing, but who says we're dealing with a conservative? I don't think anybody. So this is what we're facing. This is what's going to be coming up now. And I just thought we should spend some time uh, learning a little bit about what infrastructure is like in this country right now and, and how this would work. So anyway, we got that going. We got that going for us, which is nice. Third hour's already here. Show flying by. Phone line's open. I'll be back right after the break. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to our three in the Freedom Hunt today. I'll talk to you a bit about some analysis that's out there now, or uh, it's not really a meme. It's just more of a of a concept that's getting a lot of attention from various left wing websites, bloggers, analysts, all that kind of stuff. And the short version is that they're saying, oh, my gosh, O-M-G. Oh, my. They, they don't say gosh, of course, but OMG, we've totally handed the Trump presidency a loaded handgun when it comes to presidential powers. This is the way that they describe it now. And th- there's a bit of uh, a moment of. Yes, I would say a disbelief from people like me, and I'm sure many of you feel the same way. We've been saying for eight years, you know, Obama's been doing this stuff that whether you like Obama or not, it sets a really bad precedent. It's not good for the president to do certain things, no matter how good the president is. Of course, a lot of us would disagree about how good the president is, but that's not even the point. It doesn't matter. There are just some things. Our entire government is is more or less set up so that there are some things that the government just can't do. It's not supposed to do, not allowed to do, should not do. And those limitations are not about partisanship. They're not about whims. They're not about moments of of public acclaim or disapproval or any of that. There's some things government shouldn't do. Some things the executive branch specifically should not do. Right? We have a we have limitations on government. We have the establishment of individual rights and the Bill of Rights, but beyond, and also the creation of a system and apparatus of government, but the whole checks and balances, you know, all the stuff we learn about in you know, civics class, social studies class, whatever, if you're in the sixth grade, has to do with trying to make sure that government doesn't exceed its authority in any number of different areas. And there are other, and the way you do that is there are other parts of the government that also prohibit the government from from going beyond its mandate. Okay, the executive branch under eight years of Obama has clearly violated some of these core precepts. And some of them I've mentioned to you before, we're just going to go over a few of them now, because people who were saying then, well, you know, Obama, we can trust Obama with this stuff, so I'm not going to, whether they said this publicly or this was just their thinking, I'm not going to make a big deal of it because I trust Obama was more or less how they came down on this stuff. 
right? I, I'm not going to complain too much about it because I trust Obama. Well, hold on a second. What do you mean you're not going to complain about it because you trust Obama? The point is, or rather the question should be, is the commander-in-chief, is the president of the United States allowed to do this thing, or should the commander-in-chief do this thing? Is it within the scope of his duties? And also, is, is, is it within keeping to his oath to uphold and defend the Constitution? You look at things, for example, like the usage of the Espionage Act. I, I, I've said it so many times, and it bears repeating, use more times under Obama than every president. I mean, start thinking about some random presidents and start racking them up in your head. The Obama administration used the Espionage Act to prosecute American citizens for espionage more times than every administration before it combined. Combined. They're not number one. They're number one by miles and miles and miles when it comes to this. And this is not something that they should be particularly proud of, especially when you see some of the prosecutions that they pursued. In some cases, prosecutions that entirely, like with the NSA whistleblower, completely fell apart. It was just government vindictiveness, run amok. And you see some of the tactics that they used as well, whether it's using a subpoena to get records from the Associated Press to track down a leak or uh, calling a report or calling a journalist a possible co-conspirator in a leak. Uh, The Obama administration was quasi totalitarian in its approach to these things. I mean, it was really over the line. And the people in the best position and and with a most direct stake in it, journalists, didn't really make much of a peep about it. They would bring it up, but they would always say, oh, well, but, you know, hope and change. He's so amazing. Have you heard his last speech? Yeah, he's grabbing our phone records. Yes, it was this administration's position, for example, that you have no, that there is no First Amendment protection against a journalist having to identify a source in federal court. They may, as a matter of policy on an individual basis, choose not to force a journalist to do that, but they could if they want to. That's your leftist, progressive uh, champion of free speech, Obama, at work there. They left that one wide open. So on, on dissent or cracking down on dissent, cracking down on leaks, this administration was the harshest administration in U.S. history uh, when you look at the number of prosecutions, I mean, you could look at Woodrow Wilson and some some other administrations. You could look at, unfortunately, our history is much less, uh, a much less proud tradition when it comes to free speech than we often realize. You go back to the Alien and Sedition Acts, and it was the very early 1800s, and you've got people who are more or less just trying to throw the other guy in prison for saying stuff that they don't like. And this was, you know, John Adams, Jefferson, that that period of time, right? The Alien and Sedition Acts were essentially a repudiation of the First Amendment by the new, by the newly minted, you know, founding fathers, the government of foreign, by the people. And look up the Alien and Sedition Act. You'd be like, oh, 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 that's not good. They're trying to lock each other up under this stuff, advocating for or against war, advocating for or against certain policies was no longer considered protected speech. It was sedition. So we have this long tradition of this. And so I don't want to say that Obama was worse than than every other administration, but in terms of the number of prosecutions, worse than anybody else. And when you go back and you look at the history surrounding 
uh, specifically the Espionage Act and its usage uh, and the way that it's been applied through history. I mean, this is when you get people that say things like, oh, well, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And they think this is a brilliant thing to say. They don't realize that that was used to to prosecute. That was a Supreme Court's decision in order to allow the prosecution of somebody who was a socialist who was handing out anti-war pamphlets. They believed that was equivalent to yelling fire in a crowded theater. That was the reasoning. Very people, you know, they don't ever read this. They don't care. They just go, oh, it's like yelling fire in a crowded theater. Thanks, guy. Yeah, we've, we've all heard that one before. Um, but there are other things uh, that we must address. Okay, so the administration's bad on that. Perhaps more troubling to many of you, I would assume, as well, is that the administration was the first that I'm aware of. Well, certainly technologically, you can say pretty easily they'd be the first. The first to kill a U.S. citizen via drone without trial and keep the legal, first of all, keep the whole process, keep the whole incident secret, and then keep the reasoning behind it secret. This is assassination of a U.S. citizen without trial, who was not a an immediate battlefield threat, who was not holding a ticking time bomb. Yeah, he had joined the enemy. And look, I think blowing up Anwar al-Aghi is a good thing. But, and I've just read about the news reports on this, just so we're all clear. Uh, but, with that said, the left has to also, you know, I'm willing to make concessions and admit what's being traded off. They pretend that Obama's as champion of, of civil liberties and, and freedom and the First Amendment when Obama's out there, you know, droning people. And in some case, there's the drones without, without any public legal justification for it. So that's, though, these are precedents that have been set by the administration that is currently in office and that will soon be out of office. And now you have this moment of panic setting in. Many different panics, of course, on the left about Donald Trump. But you have a moment of panic setting in whereby they don't seem like they have any idea or have any willingness to let it play out. They are freaked out that Donald Trump will have the same authorities that Barack Obama had or that he'll take it upon himself to have the same authorities that Barack Obama had. And perhaps more to the point, they're worried that he will expand upon the precedent that has been set. You know, there are a couple of different immediate reactions to this that I have, and I'm sure many of you share them too. The first is, okay, this we've been yelling about this all along. You know, Republicans, conservatives, the right, we've been saying all along, you know, I know you guys have this, just almost irrational love for Obama and think that he's the greatest super genius to have ever held any office in history. And, you know, he's like a combination of, uh, I I don't know, the Cicero and uh, Pericles and Julius Caesar and everybody, you know, all the great, I don't know who are the greatest, you know, he's a combination of Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan and... Name your Messiah. Name your name your uh, religious figure that you know inspires devotion. Whatever. That's kind of how they thought of Obama, right? The greatest, the greatest ever. And so they were willing to, even if they would point out that this made them a little uncomfortable, they weren't going to openly advocate against Obama doing it. They were just going to say, "Well, you know, I kind of wish that he'd be a little careful, but it's Obama." And we were saying to them at the time, "Well, just wait. It won't always be Obama." 
And you will have lost credibility when the next thing comes up, when the next time comes around and we're trying to stop the president or you want to stop the president, I should say, from using these powers. You're not going to be a voice that people can listen to because it's not based in any principle. It's just based in partisanship. You don't like when Donald Trump can do this, but you liked when Barack Obama could do this. And I think it should also be stated that they're going to say, oh, well, but Trump is so uh, Trump is so erratic and such a loose cannon. And they would say this if Ted Cruz was the president now. They would say this probably if John Kasich was the president now. It's just now the shoe's in the other foot. And so the analysis shifts and it changes. But I, I think it's really worthwhile. And this is true on a number of levels for us to stop. And one, it's kind of fun to remind ourselves that we were right. Right. So we were right. That Obama was setting dangerous precedents, that he was exceeding, uh, that he was exceeding his authority in certain critical areas, that he wasn't the champion of civil liberties and civil rights and free speech and all of the all of that stuff. That, by the way, the, the left has largely cast out. Right, the left has turned that or has turned those concepts into purely issues of, you know, identity politics and. The, uh, the the combination of the racial entitlement and the sort of racial grievance state. And that's what civil liberties and civil rights now means. It's never just about an individual has certain inalienable rights specific to every individual. And we have them. And no, no, it's well, some people have rights, but some people have special rights and they have rights that conflict with those of other people. But because of historical injustice, and they, they've convoluted the whole thing. And it, and it falls into inconsistency, just as they're, you're seeing now all the time so much inconsistency on the left. You know, they liked it when Obama did it. They're not going to like it now. Certain things were okay then. They're not going to be okay. Executive orders, another fantastic example of this. President Obama goes around. He has a pen and a phone, right? Got a pen, got a phone. This was his whole thing. And he decided that he would not wait for Congress to act. And many of us at the time pointed out that's a very unsettling statement for the for the commander in chief to make. I'm not going to wait for Congress to act. What does that mean? It's Congress's prerogative whether to act or not. That's why it is there and that's why it has the discretion to pass bills, to pass laws, to repeal them or not. It's not on Obama's timetable. Obama doesn't get to, you know, yeah, he can publicly harangue the Congress and and try to use the power of the bully pulpit, sure. But to just go ahead and take it upon himself to usurp congressional authority, to go around that branch of government because he feels so strongly about it, I'm sorry, that's not okay. That's not an acceptable argument. And now there's this, as I said, moment of recognition and really a moment of panic from the left that, OMG, now Donald Trump gets to have executive orders. They're not even it, it's, it's not even just the fact that Donald Trump will be able to come up with his own preferred policies and perhaps try to institute them via executive fiat. Although that's a that's a big looming boogeyman in the minds of many on the left already. They object to a President Trump repealing the executive orders of a President Obama. Why is that a problem? Or, I mean, maybe I can understand why they wouldn't like it, but there's no principled objection to this just per se. It's not it's not possible to make a case. Oh, well, because Obama liked this thing and did it, Donald Trump can't say, well, no, I disagree with that and I'm going to undo it. 
right? This is this is what you're seeing play out. That they they abandoned principles for Obama, and now they're trying to stand on principles. It's just like with the Constitution. They only use the Constitution as a weapon against their enemies when it's politically convenient. They actually hate and undermine the Constitution as a general prince as a general issue. But they pretend to have principles when they can use the Constitution for their own ends. And then all of a sudden they're oh, Article Two, and no, no, no. That's just a game for them. They're not serious about it. They're not serious in the sense that there's some uh, deeper reverence and respect. They're not trying to maintain the system. They're not trying to protect the genius of the system we have. They're just picking and choosing when they hold it up and say, look at this. This is important. We need to, we need to respect this. So get ready for this. It's already happening. But, man, you are going to see hypocrisy on steroids with this coming administration's uh, coverage by the media. You are going to see people who, without any trace of, of, of irony, without any trace of even the least bit of shame, will make arguments today that completely contradict the arguments they have been making in some cases for eight years. But it's really just about rah, rah, go my team, down with your team. Even when they say it's about protecting this republic, even when they say it's for the betterment of all Americans, it's really just about my team versus your team and our team, or rather the Republican team. I know some of you don't consider this to be your team. The Republican team is going to be in office. Therefore, whatever they can do to undermine it, they will. Even if it means undermining themselves in the process. Going to hit a break here, team. 888-900-3393. Got some spots on the phones. You want to call in? We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So this is from a who is this guy on Twitter here? I Ian Ian. Sorry, although I believe the guy from Beverly Hills nine hundred two and zero he pronounces his name Ian Zering. Side note, he's also in Sharknado. Um, but if your name is I A N, I'm going to say Ian, even if you want me to say Ian. So uh, Ian Chong uh, tweeted this out. Uh, this is from the University of Michigan Law School. So we're not even talking undergrads here. All right, we're talking, you know, future lawyers and judges and prosecutors of America. Let's start with that. And this is for today. (laughs) This is great. Post-election. This is up on their website for, like, activities for students today. Post-election self-care with food and play. And this is, we missed it, guys, unfortunately. It was from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Central. So I'm sorry to say. You missed the post-election self-care with food and play at the University of Michigan Law School. University of Michigan Law School, by the way, a really good law school. Not that that really makes a difference here, but just keep in mind. So this is like the future law partners of America and people that will be working at DOJ and people that will have important jobs, you would think, in the law. They are at least offered the ability to, as it's described here, quote, join us for delicious and comforting food with opportunity to experience some stress-busting self-care activities 
such as coloring sheets, Play-Doh, positive card making, Legos, and bubbles with your fellow law students. Now, I know they don't specifically mention that this is, you know, to help de-stress after Trump's super scary victory, but that's obviously what it is. But these are law students, and they're offering them a chance to play with Legos and bubbles together? I mean, are they for real? The answer is yes, they are. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, Team Buck, I'm very pleased we're joined by our friend Pete Hegseth. He's a Fox News contributor and author of the book In the Arena. Major Pete, always a pleasure, buddy. How you doing? Um, I'm doing well, Buck. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate having you. So uh, you got a piece up here on foxnews.com. Life for our veterans and our military could be much different soon. Pete, uh, walk us through how you think things could change for the better for our military under a Trump administration. Well, two key issues. Uh, there's a ton of things that get a lot of press about Trump. Two that, that get mentioned often by him, but list are his rebuilding of the military, but also his focus on the VA and real VA reform. I mean, our military is in a morale crisis. It's in a readiness crisis. It's in a funding crisis. It's in a it's in a it's a rudderless crisis where the commander doesn't really give them the resources they need to win. Of that, like funding, pretty quickly, which eventually leads to increase in morale increase in readiness, increase in modernization. Vets care about that. Uh, Pete, can we try to get you on a uh, on a reconnect? Because we're, we're dropping you a lot on the call. Oh, he okay. Well, like, we're definitely going to have to get him a reconnect because I'm not talking to myself. We'll see if we can get our friend uh, Pete Hegseth to, to join again. He's often uh, traveling. He's often in transit. Uh, so... We will see if we can have him. I really, I really wanted to hear what Major Pete had to say. As you'll note, we used to call him Captain Pete, but then he was promoted. He's Major Pete. Uh, so, up oh, is, is he gone? Go, let me know, John, if he comes back. I know, I know the the, uh, the the team Buck is sad right now. Darby in Dallas, you're bailing us out. Great to talk to you, my brother. What's going on? Hey, Buck, how you doing? I wanted to find out what you thought. I had heard from several different places that um, the reason that part of the reason that most of the polls were wrong with this election is that the left has created a culture where people are sort of, I don't want to say embarrassed, but reticent to give their views if they are different from, from what the left deems uh, uh, acceptable. And they express their views at the ballot box. I just want to find out what your thoughts were about that. You mean the, the polls are wrong because people are, people are concerned about being considered a bigot and a racist and all that stuff that the left says about Trump voters? Is that what we're going where exactly. you're, you're Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I think there were there, yeah, the secret. The polls were wrong, and there were secret Trump voters. Those are things that we have found out since now. I mean, I, I did have on uh, John Fund, who made an important point. He said, "Look, the polls, you know, the polls. There's a mar- If you're up three percent, the margin of error is three percent. You know, well, then actually the polls weren't really wrong. They just were being interpreted to be much more definitive <laughs> than they were. Uh, so, you know, maybe they weren't quite as wrong as we're all." Make them out to be. Do we? Do we have uh, John? Let me know if we have Pete or not, or Pete. 
Oh, okay. Oh, sadness. Sorry, Darby. Uh, so uh, yes, the, the answer. I, I think that that was a major. Uh, that, that was a, a major part of all of this, and that just goes to show you. Isn't it interesting? It really ties into Trumpism in general. Right? People wouldn't speak about their desire to vote for Trump, but part. But but part of the motiva- motivation of voting for Trump is the frustration with being told who you can and can't vote for, right? So it all sort of ties into each other. It's all linked. Um, and that individuals would feel uh, even, I mean, who, who really cares what you tell a pollster, right? It's not like they're going to, you know, mark your house or something and come by and get you later. I mean, you, you would think that, that it wouldn't be, wouldn't be that big of a deal. But clearly some people just also, I think, didn't want to admit it out late. You know, if you said it out loud, it's like you make it real. You know, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. You say that, and then it's like, wow, I'm actually going to vote for Donald Trump. I came on air here the day of the election before anyone. Before, I I thought I was I thought I was only throwing my vote away in the state of New York in the sense that he was clearly going to lose. I was like, well, I just you know spent a half hour, went down to the polling place, voted for Trump, and you know whatever. That's kind of how it went down. And sure enough, um, so a, a lot of obviously a lot of people were wrong on this, but but also the desire to not be uh, considered part of that. White backlash, if you want to borrow from uh, Van Joes over at CNN, I think that that was strong in a lot of people's minds, at least when they were speaking publicly about it. But at the dinner table among friends and family, they were more willing to uh, be open and honest, which was just, again, for the white working class voter. Yeah. What does the Democratic Party offer them? Uh, Public sector union support. I mean, what does the Democratic Party offer them? Uh, Longer unemployment benefits, maybe. I mean, there's not. You know, they're not pushing for them and they're actually constantly undermining their values, their contributions to the economy. You know, even even the phrase, Darby, doing the jobs that Americans won't do. Well, when you're talking about the jobs that Americans won't do, you're talking about low skill, low wage jobs. Right. That's going to be a, a fair number of those jobs would be done by white working class males. And so the, you know, the implication is that they're too lazy to do them. And this is a Democrat talking right. point set all the time in favor of illegal immigration. That's spot on. The, the condensation of that statement is the, the, the condescension in that statement is almost unbelievable. I know we've talked about this before. My wife is actually a black woman. Uh, she voted for Trump. Her entire family voted for Trump. And the, the idea that the Democrats have done something for the black community over the last 50 some odd years is just ludicrous. They pander to them for votes when they need them, and then they completely forget about them, and their issues become non issues. And so then the next four years comes around, they pander to them again. And I think, I think the black community, the Hispanic community, I think all these different communities, I hope, are beginning to kind of figure this thing out that the Democrats are not really doing them any favors. I do. Look, I, I think the Democrats are going to have a, a huge majority of, of uh, the black vote for. You know, probably for the for the next few decades. Right. I mean, I I can't see it changing anytime soon. But I do think that especially as we're seeing some of the policies and things he's talking about, infrastructure projects and keeping some parts of Obamacare in place. Now, conservatives are going to look at this and be like, what the heck? But they've said all along he wasn't conservative. So it's not a surprise. I I think you're going to see I I think you're going to see more, certainly more support for for Trump from within the black community over the course of his presidency than anybody in the media would, would ever predict right now, especially based on, you know, the primary narrative is that this was, uh, there was a sort of a racial, uh, you know, a, a racial score settling with the Trump vote or something like that. I mean, it depends on who you're talking and who you're asking. But I think you're going to see much more support within the black community for Donald Trump in the next few years 
than you do right now. I think it's going to gain. I think it'll make considerable gains. Now, when you have like two percent support, if that goes up to you know eight or twelve, that's actually a right. <laughs> that's a huge increase. I'm not saying right. it's going to be like eighty percent. They're like Trump is great, but I think you're going to see the black community actually um, much more supportive of Trump after his presidency than they are pre-presidency. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. I, I think you'll see that, especially if he secures right the border. Right. I think it's a chink in the armor. You know, it's not we're not taking over. It's not it's not a complete turnaround of the entire black community, but it's it's making inroads. And I think that's the important part. Well, and you look at look because, at how close look at how close this election was. I mean, if you if you got, right. you know, if all of a sudden now in states like North Carolina and Michigan and others, you know, if, if you could get 20, 30 percent of of the black vote as a Republican, as a, you know, as the next oh. Republican coming along. You know, the, the, this this could be a difference. I mean, it depends on who votes and everything. But I mean, it could be a difference maker. You, you don't need a huge portion of the black community to begin to believe that the Republican Party actually has their interests at heart more than the Democratic Party before you see real uh, political benefit to that. So, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful like I am with all this stuff. I'm trying to be positive, Darby. I'm trying to be a, a voice of optimism. <laughs> and I appreciate that, brother. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely, man. Shields high, Darby. Thank you. I, I do think, I mean, I know I started off the show saying, why are liberals so freaked out? They pro- they got the most liberal Republican of all of the 17 that were running. I'm pretty, am I missing anybody? I mean, I don't know, maybe Pataki, but I mean, come on. More or less, they have the most left-wing Republican nominee. I shouldn't say left-wing, but moderate Republican nominee they could have, they could get. On some things, he, you know, his rhetoric and his positioning and his personality and everything is wildly offensive to Democrats. But on policy, he's actually not, you know, I mean, they're worse. Uh, here, here's what a, sort of a, a shortened version of what I'm trying to say. I know it's a little bit of it, but we're sort of coming for full circle on the show. Donald Trump is not the left's worst nightmare. On some things, he may be. We'll see. But overall, he's really not their worst nightmare. I, I think for some progressives, you know, Ted Cruz is a lot scarier. Um, I don't think Marco Rubio is scary, but I think Ted Cruz would have been much, uh, much more firm on some issues that, uh, again, as I said, tie into religious freedom and the culture war. You know, I think he would take the fight to the left on a lot of this stuff. Uh, I do think. He, you know, I think Ted Cruz really does believe in traditional marriage, for example, and and is not would not necessarily be willing to take the Trump position, which was just advocated or just uh, articulated last night on TV, where he's saying, you know, I, I think that gay marriage is a settled law of the land. I, I'm, I don't think that you would necessarily see Trump uh, saying that. I'm sorry, uh, Cruz saying that. So we'll have to see. I, I need to look look into Bannon more. I know this is also, I mean, CNN has, a, has headlines up now. I'm getting this uh, on my Twitter. Several groups are calling on Donald Trump to withdraw Stephen Bannon's appointment to a senior White House role. I just think it's fascinating. You know, a, I, I don't know much about Bannon, and I won't admit that right off the bat. I really don't. I've never met him. I've had no interaction with him professionally at all. Uh, I don't know the guy. So, and I and I have no, I don't know much about him. So don't take me, don't, you know, just... Put that aside for a second. I do think it's interesting that having a sort of a, a partisan media figure on the left very involved in an administration, in a, in a White House administration, that's completely, you know, David Axelrod was what, a Chicago Tribune writer, I think, or something like that? So he's a left-wing journalist. David Axelrod was a senior most advisor to 
uh, senior most advisor to Barack Obama. Second, really only, I should say, perhaps to Valerie Jarrett, who's also, you know, you look at, look at the people that Obama was surrounding himself with as advisors. It was the media complaining about that. What were Valerie Jarrett's, uh, what were her qualifications to be senior white, you know, senior White House advisor, really the senior most White House advisor, second only to, for Barack's purposes, as I understand it, only to Michelle Obama. You know, we, we, we you know, they weren't all breathless. I know she wasn't, they would say she's not a racist, all right, all the stuff they're saying now, but, but in terms of qualifications, in terms of this is who we want advising the most powerful person in the world, I don't think Valerie Jarrett would be the top of the list, okay? For people that get to this level, they want those around them that they feel like, one, were a part of their process in getting there, and two, that they personally trust. And the, whoever, whomever Donald Trump personally trusts to advise him and give him, uh, give him counsel and to keep his confidence, that's really a decision that he should be left to make you know, on his own. And, you know, cause he has to suffer the con his administration is going to be judged. He'll suffer the consequences one way or the other of the people he surrounds himself with. Um, people who are saying, you know, Oh, look, look at this. I mean, Ben Carson, Giuliani, Chris Christie. I mean, these were all contenders for the Republican nomination. These are all serious people. These are all accomplished people. Ben Carson's very accomplished, really much more accomplished as a, as an American and as a citizen than as a politician, of course. But, these are all, you know, Ben Carson, maybe uh, Surgeon General. People have talked about that before. Um, Chris Christie, I don't know. I read a thing in the Post that said that Donald Trump is very unhappy with Christie as a result of the Bridgegate thing and that that's causing a huge... I don't know how true that is. got to find out. I've got some people that are going to start to hopefully be worthwhile sources from within the Trump campaign and sort of the Trump camp, um, and I'm going to be cultivating those sources and, and building trust with them and you know, because I want I do want to know what's going on from that side of it. I, I can't you can't rely on the major networks and the broadcast networks to tell you what's going on inside the Trump because it's always going to be intended to undermine. And maybe there's bad stuff and maybe we're going to be talking about a lot of that over the next four years. I, I don't know. But in the meantime, I got to hear what's going on from within the Trump camp from people that actually know or at least hear their side of it, because I'm sure if, if you rely on the mainstream media, we're still furious about this whole thing. All you're going to hear is, you know, oh, man, there's all these members of the KKK applying for senior positions in the Trump administration. I mean, it's just just, you know, give it a break. Like I said, no, no honeymoon at all. Uh, there is no there is no proverbial trip to Mar-a-Lago for this administration, man. It's going to be it's going to be a siege mentality from the beginning. But they're used to that. That's the good news. Trump and his, his his people are like, yeah, they hate us. They've always hated us. What difference does it make? At this point, you could ask. We'll hit a break. We'll close it out. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. You know, I, I saw this and I meant to talk about it to you. I just want to note, wanted to bring it up really quickly. I know it was a couple of days ago that the publisher of the New York Times released this rededication letter, essentially saying, hey, guys, we promise, we, we totes promise for reals this time, 
We're going to make sure that we are journalists going forward that bring you information and tell you about the world. And we're going to be like real journalists that do journalism. You know, we're going to be journalizing. We're going to be journalizing the crap out of things. It's going to be so journalistic uh, because they realize not only did they miss the Trump surge by a mile, which they, it's just from a, from the perspective of accuracy and forecasting. Not only did they say the day before the election, Hillary had an 84 percent chance of winning. 84 percent chance. If I told you there was an 84 percent chance you were going to live to see tomorrow, you'd be like, all right, I'll probably be all right. I mean, it's not great, but like, I'll be OK. 84 percent chance. And so the New York Times publishes this letter saying, yeah, you know, sorry, um, we totally uh, we totally messed up, guys. But please, please subscribe. Please still love us. We'll be good. We promise. Uh when the New York Times realizes that it's jumped the shark with its advocacy journalism, uh, journalism masquerading as independent, fierce, speak truth to power journalism, you, you know something's happened. So anyway, I just found that fascinating. Uh, team, that's it for me today. I actually got a lot more show in my head, but we got to bounce for now. I'll be back tomorrow, obviously, 12 Eastern here in the Freedom Hut. Do me a favor, download the show. Uh, my podcast audience, love you guys and gals. Please uh, share it with a friend or two after you download it. And you can send me your thoughts at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Until tomorrow, my friends, have a fantastic evening. Shields high. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.